0: Hello, I'm Kahal Summers.
1: And I'm Gertrude you
0: Your Chagas Sustainability Advisors. And you're welcome to the Chagas Environment Edge podcast, number 37, bringing you the latest information, science, and opinion to improve farm sustainability.
1: The farmer and the earthworm have a long standing relationship. But now, more than ever before, we are discovering the huge contribution this army of small creatures make to our land.
0: But are we doing enough to return the favour? Earthworm specialist Professor Olaf Schmidt from University College Dublin, School of Agriculture and Food Science, joins us to discuss just that. Olaf, you're very welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Olaf, I suppose um, every everywhere I go when I talk about soils with farmers, I always mention your name a lot because earthworm always comes up. But before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about your background?
2: I am studied agriculture sciences in um, Germany and then I did um, a master's in soil science in Aberdeen in the UK, and I actually moved here to Ireland in 1994 because there was the perfect PhD project about um, soil ecology, soil physics, and earthworms, and I just you know stayed because you know I love it here, and uh, there are lots of earthworms and there is a lot to research, so.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's a great way to get in, Um, and I suppose now you've mentioned earthworms. Look, the one thing I I often wonder about is why have we become so interested in earthworms um, in recent times, in particular? What's the fascination?
2: Well, it's um, they are you know hugely important, and they are you know a major visible aspect of of you know of below ground. Biodiversity and soil biodiversity, which usually is hidden away, it's invisible and ignored and little known. But the big advantage of earthworms is because they are, you know, soil macrofauna, they're very large, so you can actually see them, you can, you know, dig them up yourself, you can show them to, you know, farmers and land users, you know, school kids and so on. They love them because you know, who doesn't like an earthworm. And also, you know, you see their channels, you see their casts and middens, and they are, you know, extremely, you know, useful to explain about, you know, um, biodiversity, soil functions, and how important this, you know, knowledge is and you know, this understanding. We do have many more, of course, you know, soil microbes and we have, you know, mesofauna and mycorrhizal fungi and bacteria and all these, you know, hugely, you know, important functional groups, but they are not visible usually and they are not as easy to explain, you know, the interactions and so in the soil.
0: I think you've nailed it there because we can't see them sometimes, we don't believe that there's processes going on there. But how, how many earthworms would you expect to find in maybe a hectare of soil, a healthy soil, maybe?
2: Yeah, I mean, we have looked, you know, you know, in many different ecosystems and land uses. So in Ireland, you know, with its Atlantic climate, you would expect at least 100 worms, you know, in a meter square, which is the equivalent of a million earthworms in a hectare. We could see more. And um, if you if you know if you weigh them, let's say in a good pasture soil, you know uh, we would have you know something like two tons of living earthworms in an hectare. Okay, and this is if you ask me, you know a really useful figure to you know imagine that there is in the soil at least as much you know living biomass and living Animal, as you see above ground, you know, as livestock. So they, in a way, are also livestock. You know, we need to look after them, we need to feed them, and in exchange, they will deliver very substantial uh, functions, you know, and benefits for soil physics, nutrient supply, and so on.
0: It's amazing the amount of worms that are there. That's that's a huge volume. Um, Is there different types? I know we're probably all familiar with the lovely pink ones that we see at the surface, but is there other types
2: as well? Yes, no, we do have, uh, you know, something like 28 species of earthworms here in Ireland, which is, you know, a small subset obviously of the earthworms we would have on the European continent. I'm saying roughly 28, because we know now with molecular methods, you know, that some of them have cryptic species, which means, you know, they look the same if you use a microscope. But if you look at the DNA, they are different. But yes, so we we do have many different species. And of these, about half are rare species and or they would be limited to microhabitats. You know, let's say, you know, in stream beds, you know, in manure heaps, uh, in um, bark and so on. But in a farmland soil, in a given field, you would expect at least five species at the same time. And in the best soils, for example, in UC Lions Farm, there is a famous field where we have looked, we had 12 earthworm species in the same field. You know, and this is, you know, biodiversity. And if you look at them, you see that they have different sizes, different behaviors. They live, you know, in different layers of the soil. So some of them will live in, you know, in the litter layer and in the root mat, whereas some will dwell in the subsoil and, you know, and eat the soil. So, yes, there is an biodiversity even within this one group of soil macrofauna.
1: Olaf, <clears throat> I think Chagas are leading the way really when placing the importance of soil structures, soil health, um, soil biodiversity. Um, is there a difference in populations um, where you have different cultivation practice? Say example, um, ploughing versus min till or grassland versus tillage in your worm populations.
2: Yes, absolutely. So, you know, the major factor you know if you think of it earthworms because they have such la- large bodies is you know the disturbance and mechanical impact and the food so as soon as you plow each year you know you will physically harm worms you know you will you know you will chop them you will expose them to you know uv light and birds and so on you know seagulls that eat them But in the longer run, you will also destroy their, you know, their food source and their habitat where they live. So let's say we spoke about the um, earthworms, which, which live, you know, in the litter layer, if you use turning plowing, obviously you will mix that in with the soil and you will immediately lose these species. So, yeah.
0: It's a, pity, it's a pity. isn't it, that um, we're, all, we're always. I suppose we do a lot of work on. I do on soil structure and showing farmers soil pits and and, and different ways looking at soil health. But um, when when you do you, you plow, you just wreck the soil structure straight away, and all that work that the earthworms have done over the previous years is undone. All of is that a big problem?
2: What we do really with this system is that we, you know, use a lot of you know external energy and inputs and machine time and so on to do all the functions that normally, you know, an earthworm would do. So the most, you know, famous of all earthworm researchers was Charles Darwin, who one year before he died in, in, in 1881 published, you know, his famous book on the earthworms. He was, you know, obsessed with earthworms. And it was really interesting because in, in his early days, he studied geology, and and he observed and he understood that an earthworm, even though individually they are so meek and you know and small, you know you know and helpless, but together all their actions, you know, they are when they make channels, they excrete casts, they eat the litter that almost as it is in geological time, all these small actions will add up and they will accumulate. So in his book, he actually called earthworms nature's plow, because you know he realized that they do the same function. So they turn over the soil, they bury the litter, they eat seeds of the weeds and they digest them as well. Except of course, it is much slower than the plow. So, in his own estate in England, he did some research, and he estimated that in England earthworms eat the topsoil layer roughly once every thirty years. You know, and it's in his book, and in later research, you know, it was. refined and so on, these estimates, but he was actually um, very close, you know, and acute, you know, in his observations that what they do, uh, you know, is the same function as the plough, except it's much slower, you know, so it's not the instant, you know, you know impact that we have.
1: Olaf, well, different, to different um, types of worms work in the different horizons of the soil or is it the one type of worm
2: no so um i have a whole lecture on this because it's really interesting there isn't the earthworm so in you know in simple terms we divide the european earthworms into three ecological groups so there basically are the species that live on the surface of the soil so we call them the epigeeks because they live on top of the soil. They normally need um, you know, a leaf litter layer or root mud or dung parts, they love the dung. They are small red worms, which you would normally see. Then we have the true earthworms, which are the endogeeks and they are usually white or gray and they only dwell in the mineral layer of the soil and they eat the soil. They are the species that eat enormous amounts of mineral soil. Why is that? Because it is an extremely poor food source. So that's why they have to eat so much. And that's actually why they give us all of these functions, you know, know, of making soil aggregates, of making channels and so on. And then there is a third group, which chances are, you've seen there's about three species of the anisic earthworms or the deep dweller. So they are very large earthworms, you know, including lumbicus terrestris or you know the worm, which is the largest species uh, which we have. It's you know up to 30 centimeters long. And they do something very interesting they live all their life in a single vertical channel that is very deep. It goes all the way to the water table or, you know, the rock um, beneath the subsoil where they are always in the daytime and in the winter and in the summer. And at night they surface. So they will leave their channel with their head end at night, and they will forage for, you know, leaves, straw, harvest residues, seeds, dung, and so on, which they drag into their channels where it is nice and moist, where it will decompose, and then this will be eaten over time. So if you know these basic three groups, okay, so on the surface in the mineral layer of the soil, and then there are these large ones with the vertical channels you start to understand they also have all different functions okay so let's say the the anisic which have these big channels in soil science language they are soil macro pores so they are you know like the highway in this in the soil matrix which is normally very dense and compact and they are of course hugely functional for intake of water. So if you have, you know, a storm event and rain, they will make a big difference because then the in, the infiltration will be much, much larger if you have these earthworms. What they also do is they will eat all of your straw and your harvest residues and so on. And in the spring, it will all have disappeared. So yes, they do all these um, functions in the soil and, you know, in different layers and so on, as I just explained.
1: It's fascinating.
0: I'm glad you asked that question, Jerzy, because Darwin only went to the plough, but we actually have ploughs and subsoilers of worms now. So they're actually doing more than Darwin thought they we were doing. <laughs> but actually, so we, we've touched on the physical structure um, because fertilizers are so expensive now and nitrogen is kind of so expensive, Olaf. Um, we we now know much more about earthworms and the amount of nitrogen they release. Can you tell us a bit about that?
2: I have been interested know, in this for a long time. So in my PhD, we, you know, used a method where we estimated how much nitrogen, you know, all of the earthworms, you know, in a field will contribute, you know, and they do this through their mucus or their slime, because if you live, you know, in the grainy soil, you need to protect yourself. So that's why they are moist, and they constantly excrete mucus, you know, or slime, which is rich in CNN. And they also have urine, which they, you know, excrete over their surface. And of course, when they die, they will also contribute. And and we were really amazed. We came up with numbers that are agronomically meaningful okay so we found um in in a conventional plowed wheat field they would contribute something like 50 kilograms of n in an hectare you know each year which is a large amount and then we we had a system where we had um winter wheat with no tillage in a permanent understory of white clover, you know, which was a really interesting system way ahead of its time. But I think soon, hopefully it will, you know, it will have its time. And we found that earthworms contributed almost 200 kilograms of N in a year, in a hectare. So they obviously are very, you know, you know, a very large source of N. Now, Recently, I was also interested to ask when they do this, because there is a sort of um, reason to think that the earthworm activity, you know, when it's warm enough, when it's moist enough, may be synchronized with the end uptake in the crop, you see, because, you know, if it's moist and warm, that's when they're both active. So we did a really cool study with a PhD student and we labeled live earthworms with a thing called stable isotopes. So it's, you know, it's like a tracer where you can chase and follow up the N that they excrete. And we did this in the lab, but also in the field. And we followed the nitrogen earthworms excrete into barley plants and into the aphids or the green flies that feed on the barley. So if you maybe would like to guess how fast did we find the earthworm N in the aphid? What do you think?
0: Oh, is it, uh, you have to phone a friend who wants to be a billionaire.
2: Okay, okay. That's actually in lab,
0: of, it, It's interesting because one of my questions is going to be what form of nitrogen is it, is it in? And I, I'd be a complete guess. I'm, I'm hoping it's within 20 days anyway, at least.
2: Yeah, yeah, so in the lab, it was two hours. Oh my God. Two hours, so yes. Yeah. And in the field, it was 24 hours, which, you know, in my field of research, was a little bit of a sensation because what I said about you know, Charles Darwin and geological times and slow action, they do all this, but the end cycle, obviously, they also work very fast. Okay, so if you have um, a day where the earthworms are active, where the crops are active, where the roots are, the direct uptake of the nitrogen that was in the earthworm tissue by the root and the crop is extremely fast, you know, which was very exciting because it really shows that probably they supply the nitrogen where and when you need it for your crop, you know, because they are active when it's moist and warm. So this was very exciting and it was an example where, you know, again it showed there still are lots of things we don't know. You know about, you know, soil function and the biology in the soil and the organisms and how they work together you know so that was an exciting finding.
0: Tune in next time for part two of our interview with Olaf to hear all about how some earthworms actually inherit lifelong built channels from their parents and discover where their slurry application is a friend or foe of the earthworm.
1: That's it for this episode of the Chagas Environment Edge podcast. Thanks to Professor Olaf Schmidt from University College Dublin, School of Agriculture and Food Science, for joining us on the show.
0: Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. You can listen to Apple and Google podcasts as well as Spotify. And for more information, go to the Chagas website at chagas.ie. I'm Kahal Summers.
1: And I'm Georgia Len.
0: Join us next time for the Chagas Environment Edge podcast, signpost to farm sustainability.